Have you ever had an injury that nobody could see? Now, I'm not wearing a cast, but the injury affected everything you did because you had, had to nurse it. For example, this week, I, I sprained my wrist doing some weird shoveling. I, I didn't know one could do that. Uh, I'm finding I can hurt myself through all kinds of tough work these days by uh, things like walking and sitting up, turning over in bed. Uh, so my, my wrist has hurt. Um, and it changed how I do a lot of tasks. Like, uh, I've had to drive differently, type differently, how I lay down and sit myself up. It's affected how I eat, how I talk on the phone. That's a lot of stuff. Just a wrist. Affects a lot. Affects how I open a door, how I wash a dish. It's getting better, by the way. It's improving. But it affects me. I baby it. I, I attend to it. And that's how, what we do when we have a wound, when we have an injury. We baby it. We favor it. We try to guard it and keep it safe. Uh, animals lick their wounds. We, just, we try to keep it safe, hoping that if we don't disturb it, it will heal. If we don't disturb it, it will heal. As we progress through the Gospel of John, today we witness Jesus as he encounters a woman uh, with a far more significant injury than a physical injury. It's affected everything she does. It's affected the way she moves about life, her routines. It affects her pattern of conversation. It affects her place in her community, in a village. It affects her sense of self. She, she must attend to this injury. Shapes everything. She's broken on the inside. She has no hope of healing. And then one day, she meets a man who can see all the way in. He can see it. He can see the invisible wounds. And he heals her. One with no hope of healing, he heals her. We're in John chapter 4. If you have the Bible, please look. This is during the first six months of Jesus' ministry. John gives us insights that none of the other gospel writers have preserved about the, the first period of Jesus' ministry. He has been revealed as the long-awaited Christ by John the Baptist, right at the river. And then after a brief visit to Galilee, uh, he'd been down in Jerusalem, in the, that area of Judea for a bit, demonstrating his authority in the temple, making it clear that he has authority, and beginning to announce the coming kingdom. And a few of those who had been John the Baptist's disciples have joined him, have followed him as his disciples uh, and they were, they were following him. But he hasn't yet, just to make sure we know the moment, he hasn't yet called a group, a select group, to be his near companions. He hasn't yet said, leave everything and follow me. That does come later. So as we come to John 4, 
uh, and those opening verses where he's leaving Jerusalem and he's heading back to Galilee, don't imagine a big crowd with him. This is a small group of disciples. And Jesus has seen that he is getting a name in that Jerusalem area. There's, there's a, an intensifying enthusiasm about him. The religious leaders are taking note, John tells us. They're seeing that his, his followers are growing, but it's not time for Jerusalem. So he leaves, and he heads north. He heads to Galilee. To do so, he has to pass through Samaria. That's John flags that. He has to pass through. Samaria, what is this? This is part of the old kingdom of Israel. There was the tribe of Judah in the south. Benjamin is a bit, Benjamin was traditionally part of uh, the Judean kingdom. Simeon, the territory of that tribe, was right in the middle of Judah. So this area we're talking about, old Israel, the, the, the northern tribes, um, it's, it's about ooh, eight or nine tribes worth. The Assyrian Empire had come and conquered that kingdom of old Israel and taken those people away, taken them to uh, Assyria, to Persia, to Chaldea. Wild this. Um, Assyria had failed to conquer Judah. So God intervened. He preserved that kingdom, the, the southern kingdom of Judah. When the Assyrians took the northern tribes away, they brought into that area Chaldeans, Persians, Medes, the poorest of those people, and said, oh, we'll give you some land. So they displaced the Israelites and brought in these Persians and Medes, Chaldeans, and settled them in old Israel. That's the territory of Samaria. Uh, they're named Samaritans for the chief city, Samaria. Uh, those people, once they settled there, they had trouble in the land. They had, they had trouble uh, farming it, understanding its rhythms. They had trouble with lions. God sent lions. So that animals were difficult. And the people recognized, we don't know how to worship the God whose land this is. They complained to the king of Assyria. And he, from amongst the exiles, he took a priest and sent that priest there to show them how to worship God. Well, what developed was this, this combination. It's called syncretism. They worshiped Yahweh. They worshiped the creator God. But they also worshiped their own gods. Idolatry. So Samaria, the Samaritan religion, was this mix. And so there they were. Samaritans are not Jews. That's the note here. Samaritans are not Jews. Uh, and they have a hybrid syncretistic religion that isn't, it isn't equivalent with Judaism. They had the books of Moses, but they rejected the prophets. So they, they used the first five books of the Old Testament. And yet they occupy the old land of Israel. This was a cause of great resentment. So the Jews in Judah looked at them as these are mongrels, these are dogs. They're not us. They pretend to worship our God, but they don't really. And it's this area then that Jesus passes through. That's context. As he comes along, it is midday. They've traveled all morning. It says the sixth hour. That's noon. 
And Jesus comes and he sits down beside a well. Don't, don't picture a, a, a well with a bucket. Uh, wells at this time, they're just holes in the ground surrounded by flagstones. When it says he sat down, he's on the ground. His disciples have gone into Sychar, the village, to buy food. Then comes a woman. Jesus is sitting there. The sun's blazing down. It's midday. Out from the village comes a lone woman. There is a reason she comes at midday. Others fetch water in the morning and at evening, in the cool of the day. This is true today. All over the world, when do you get water? Not in the middle of the day. She comes when she would not expect to meet anyone. But to her surprise, there's a dude sitting there. Uh, here's Jesus. Samaritans wore a different robe. They're, they had a, a different custom of dress. So it was obvious to her as she approaches, that's a Jew. And even more to her surprise, as she comes near, she would expect to be ignored. And as she gets near... This Jewish man speaks to her, asks for a drink, asks that she draw up some water for him. Jesus is breaking rules, all sorts of unwritten rules here. And she, she calls it out. Look at your text. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Samaritans are ritually unclean. In the eyes of Jewish people, they're unclean. According to the Pharisees, just by taking a drinking vessel from her, Jesus would become unclean himself. The vessel's tainted. It now taints him. Unclean. Worse. I think we often just ride right over this. Worse is he's sharing a drink. To share food, to share drink is fellowship. And we know this. He is fellowshipping with this Samaritan. That's forbidden. Jews weren't to do that with Samaritans or any Gentile. So she, she knows all this. She knows because Samaritans lived with the scorn. They knew it any time a Jew passed. They felt the, as the, the Jew walked by ignoring them or keeping hands back. She knows it. And they in turn scorned the Jews as well. Whenever the Jews were persecuted, the Samaritans laughed. Uh, when the Jews were conquered and dominated and the Jews suffered oppression, it pleased the Samaritans. So there's mutual hostility here. Now, immediately, she asks that question, and immediately Jesus takes the conversation into the realm of soul. She doesn't know him. <laughs> She doesn't know this is the thing he does. She doesn't know anything about him. She hasn't heard his name. So it takes her a moment. You can see it in the conversation. It takes her a moment to, to catch up, to see what, what is this guy driving at. But as we go through this conversation, I want you to note, look at the way that Jesus operates, how he leads on deeper and deeper 
They're starting at a level of basic interaction, and he takes it into the realm of soul. Until she understands that he is changing her world. Verse 10. She said, how, do you, how is it that you do this? If you knew the gift of God, which is Jesus himself, if you knew the gift and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You hear gift three times? Right there, gift. The emphasis is on gift. If you knew that God is giving himself in me and that I'm inviting you to fellowship, then you would have asked and I would have given you cleansing and life. If you knew what was happening here, you would have asked. Well, that, that's not what she hears, right? It's obvious that's not what she hears. The term living water, it meant running water, flowing water, like a spring or a stream. And that's what she hears. But she is a quick study. Uh, I like this lady. She is a quick study. She can tell that Jesus, uh, he isn't like other men, and he speaks differently. I mean, he speaks in weird ways, right? It's, He's immediate. She can hear the, the, the soul language that he's using. But he's talking about water, running water. So she says, this is a deep well. This well has been found. It's 138 feet deep. That is a deep well. Where do you get this running water? How, how, how does this happen? But, but she holds out, but maybe he's saying something else. Maybe he is indicating a spiritual thing. Maybe he's some sort of mystic. So she adds, he, I mean, he's already breaking some boundaries. So she holds out something else. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well to drink. Uh, and he drank from it himself along with his cattle and his sons. So Jesus, he leads her on from there. Let, let's, let's carry deeper. He leads her to think about her soul. Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Yes, Living water, this running water, it's spiritual. This water that I give, it's a spring of life that wells up, that bursts with life to cleansing, and it will satisfy, and in that satisfying will bring eternal life. Yeah, yeah, this water that I'm giving isn't like this water. And this is his spirit, what he's talking. We know this is his spirit. Throughout the Gospels, uh, the spirit is like fire. The spirit is like wind. It's like water. It's like food. 
Jesus, he uses these metaphors that we can understand that the Spirit satisfies. The Spirit makes us live. God is life. He brings new creation. And this is the gift. This is the gift that Jesus is offering. It's for the asking. And whoever asks, he will give it. So let me paraphrase her response here. Sir, I don't know what you mean, but I want it. I like the sound of that. So whatever this water is, that's what I want. Some commentators have thought that, that she's bantering, that, that, that she's a quick wit and she's just bantering or putting him off. That is ignoring the social weight of what Jesus has done. That is a shallow read. I'm sorry if that's what you've, how you've read this in the past. That's ignoring the tremendous weight of what he has done in speaking to her, in sharing a drink. Uh, it's also ignoring the power of when the Lord Jesus speaks truth, people know it. When he speaks, the world shifts. She is in earnest when she says, I'll take some of that. I don't know what it is, but I want it. Because the next part of the conversation, she's in earnest. We know because the next part of the conversation changes her life. Jesus knows what's going on in her. He knows why she's there. And he touches the wounded soul. He touches the raw place. Verse 16. Go, call your husband and come here. Go get your husband, come back, and, and I'll say more. I'll tell you about this. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. That's the wound. That's the place of her shame. That's where it resides, right there. That's the shame. So let's understand that for a woman in this culture, having five husbands means that uh, either she has been rejected five times or she left one husband to illicitly, illegally marry another. Uh, women could not initiate divorce. So... Again, she's either been serially rejected or she has been rejected and or has left husbands to marry again. It, in some ways, I would say regardless, this is a world of pain. This is a world of shame. It sins, either way, it sins against her and her own. 
And it is at this deepest place in her. It's in this place of her heart and it radiates out into everything. This is why she draws water at noon. This is why she goes out under the heat of the midday sun alone when she's not going to encounter any other woman from the town. Women who are perhaps now married to her former husband. This is a small town, Sikar. It's a village. And in a communal village setting, no one fetches water alone. But she does, because she's always alone. She's always alone. Oh, except for the one who uses her. And who won't give her the dignity of marriage. Why wouldn't she be married to this one? Because he won't. He won't give her protection. This is a terrible wound. And this is every bit as debilitating as the paralyzed man, the leprous, the blind, the cripple. And if she's going to live, I mean, if she's going to be restored like those others, if she's going to be healed, then Jesus has to touch the place. Just as he has to touch the eyes of the blind and touch the leprous. He has to touch the place. He has to uncover the place. He has to uncover the wound in order to cleanse it with the water of his words. And to put on the healing balm of his care. There's no other way. It has to be uncovered. Because kept in the dark, what happens to a wound? It just festers. It festers. It grows. It grows diseased. And ignored, it continues to just feed and change and corrupt the story of her life. It continues to poison and Jesus is a good physician. He's the good physician. And he, he speaks the truth about her situation and he brings it to the light so he can heal it. And as he does this, he makes the woman understand he's known this all along. When he spoke to her, as she came up, when he asked her for a drink, he knew her shame. He was willing to be seen talking to her. People from the village, they can see the well, they can see, they can see this. He's fellowshipping with her in a public place, in, in the full light of day. And his actions have said, He's been communicating all along. Now that she knows it, I know you. I know who you are. I know all that you've done. I know what's been done to you. I know what you've done as well. I know the nasty. I know the wounds. I know why you're alone. I know why you've come out here. And I am not ashamed of you. You are worthy of my full attention. 
She doesn't run away. That's pretty remarkable. Because that's always an option when the Lord addresses our sin. You know it's an option. Whenever he addresses our shame, we can just run away. This is the pain, right? The pain of that uncovered wound can be terrifying. We can believe that if the truth is known, if anyone knows the truth about us, we might die. It's, it's, it's a bit strange to think about, but that is the underlying fear. If the truth is known about me, I might die. And so to protect that desperate tenderness, we can put a wall up, we can put a shell around our sin or around that place of shame and it prevents us from receiving the words that heal. But she doesn't run. Because by the conversation so far, he has made it clear that he's not going to further her shame. That's not what he's after. He's not going to shame her. And now she knows that God knows. And he sent a man to her. And that's what we see in her, her words. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I perceive you're a prophet. What is that? That's powerful. She acknowledges God has known. And he sent you to me. And you haven't rejected me. So she says then, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This is interesting. She sees that the door is open for her. God hasn't totally rejected her, so her mind jumps to right worship. Okay, I've got a second chance. I'm not rejected. I'm being, a given, I'm being given another chance, she thinks. Then this time I have to get it right. This time I'll do it right. I'll do it right. This is the religious impulse common to mankind. There's a holy God. And when we accept that we've offended him, we seek to make it right. We seek to get his approval. You haven't shut the door on me. I could make you love me. I could become attractive to you again. I could do it right. Quid pro quo. This for that. I'll worship you right, I'll do it right, and you'll love me then. That's often what we do. When the truth comes, that God knows our sin. He hasn't rejected us. I can make him love me. 
Jesus cuts, he cuts through it. Verse 23, the hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then he verifies, I, I am indeed the Messiah. So forget about getting it just right. Forget about where you worship. He says, that living water, come back to it, lady. That living water that I told you about, that's God's spirit. And the time is here when whoever receives my words is going to be full of the water of life because God's spirit will fill you with it. He's seeking for those who will receive and be filled with his spirit and with truth. Life is on offer. It's on offer. If you would ask, I'd give it to you. It's on offer. The spirit of truth is ready to well up inside you. Gift, gift, gift. I will give. There's a gift here. I'll give it. It's ready. Set aside the question about getting it right. You can't clean yourself up. You can't. You are, in fact, covered with shame, and I come to you. He's proven it. So just then, the disciples come back, and the woman takes off. Probably a funny moment. I, she takes off healed. How do we know that? She takes off change. She takes off washed. How do we know? Because she runs to her village, to the very people who have rejected her day in and day out for months and years. She runs to those people who condemn and scorn her, and she says, can it be the Christ is outside by the well? Come see this one. She's got a spring welling up in her to eternal life. And she shares news. Can it be the Christ? She has not become a theologian. She doesn't, she doesn't know how it all works, how it fits together. But something has happened in her. Her life has changed. And she will never go to the well alone again. Can you? She will never make that walk at midday alone again because she knows she matters. He knows her. How transformative is that? The God who made the world knows me. I don't walk alone. I don't have to walk alone. The one who knows everything, the one who uh, has come to rule, he's restored her dignity. He spoke to her. He shared a drink with her. She has dignity. She has talked with the truth. She shared a drink of water with the king. He knows her and she knows him. 
forever afterward, she, she can say to her village, I shared a drink with the king. But don't miss the reality of what happened here. Friends, there is no way to such intimate knowledge of God by avoiding the deep places of wound and shame. There's no way. There's no way to get around it. You have to go through it. It's those places he most wants to restore. It seems unimaginable. I think when we're, when we're carrying shame, it does seem unimaginable that when we open our hearts to him and we open those places to him, that there's a, there's a kind of life, there's a quality of life that we, we've never dreamed of. And it's beyond anything we could dream of. That, that in those very places where, where there's, there's such tenderness, there's such fear, there's such a sense of darkness, that in those very places he opens up a spring. that will burst to eternal life. Lent is the time especially suited to address these issues. We're looking. We're looking ahead to his defeat of death. We're looking ahead to Good Friday when he dies. We're looking ahead to that Saturday, Holy Saturday, when he takes all sin and he pulls it into himself and he takes it into death where he takes all of our shame and feels it and takes it to destroy it so we don't take it afterward. We're looking ahead to that when he defeats death. It's a great time to confess. It's a great time to open those places, to take a risk of trust and open those places. So if the Lord's words, as he spoke to that woman, if the Lord's words have, have touched a tender place, then I, I just want, I want to encourage you to respond. We ask the Holy Spirit to be moving here. When we ask things like that, he does that. If he's touched a place, then I, the thing to do is respond. Respond. You can seek a member of the clergy or a trusted, mature Christian friend. Or a trusted, mature Christian who's not your friend. The Lord offers forgiveness and he offers healing and he offers cleansing. But it's our part to open 
and to ask. That's what he said to the woman. Ask, and I'll give it. Anyone who asks receives. If you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We have to ask. And simply in the asking, simply in the asking, we already begin to receive. Lord, Hewhart, ever ready to give, ever ready to cleanse, more ready than we are to ask, more ready than we are to receive. We admit, I, I would admit on our behalf that the problem's not with you. The, the hesitance is with us. So Holy Spirit, would you fortify, give strength, give willingness to us, to open to you, to take the risk, to believe you that we will not die. Rather, we will be healed. In Jesus' name.